Hey there, welcome to Great Quarter Guys on this beautiful Tuesday afternoon in Chattanooga, Tennessee. This is episode 78 uh, of the show where the lines between freight and finance are none. I'm your host, Andrew Cox. I'm alongside lead economist Anthony Smith. We have a guest that I have been uh, trying to track down for quite some time. I am so excited to finally have him on the show. His name is Amit Maratra. He is one of my favorite uh, transportation analysts in this space. He is at Deutsche Bank. He's the managing director there, covers transportation and shipping. And he is going to be on here in a few minutes to talk about his favorite picks uh, of the back half of the year and into next year, where he sees the industry going, where we are in the cycle. Um, It's going to be an awesome conversation, and I'm excited to pick his brain with Anthony. Uh, We've also got a few charts today. We have uh, some discussions on you care or not, and I've actually got a buy or sell that we're going to hold on to until Amit comes on. Uh, But before we hop into things, let me go ahead and thank my sponsor, Emerge. This episode is brought to you by Emerge, the digital freight marketplace. While market volatility is affecting everyone, you need an RFP expert to navigate the uncertainty. Industry expertise and technology for your RFP event now and in the future. Emerge from the confusion by visiting get.emergemarket.com slash GQG. Again, that's get.emergemarket.com slash GQG. All right, Anthony. How are you today, sir? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to be here. Um, it's been rainy almost every single day here in Freight Alley, Chattanooga, but excited to be here on my favorite rate analysis financial podcast. That's great because you're on a few of them, so I appreciate that shout out. Um, we've got uh, so we've got some charts of the day. We actually didn't do a show last week, so it's good to be back. We had uh, some some scheduling issues last week. We had an awesome uh, virtual event last week we as well, the Autonomous and Electric Vehicle Summit. You can go check all of that out on. Uh, tv.freightwaves.com. We've got all 12 of the conversations there. Go check that out. You can also catch, of course, everything from Great Quarter Guys there and all of our podcasts uh, there on tv.freightwaves.com. We had a special guest, Alan Adler, came in house. Alan Adler came and ran the show, man. He had a lot of screen time. He was great. Uh, So, Anthony, let's go ahead and get into our charts of the day. You have one for us, my man. What do you got? Yes, I I have um, our very own soul. We have Sonar here. We have our flatbed outbound tender rejection index, and we have that overlaid with, of course, industrial production year over year for machinery. And so one of the big things that we've been watching within Sonar is our flatbed opportunity rejection. I love this indice. So we're looking at it, we saw a downward movement and that flatbed opportunity rejection line. And I say downward movement lightly because we still see rejections are still historically high when we're looking at flatbed opportunity rejection. So look at that, what we saw was some downward movement um, in that orange line first, then we saw correspondingly, that downward movement and industrial production for machinery. Not to say that machinery or manufacturing is slowing or easing. There's a slight downward movement, but there's still tons in the, in the backlogs, tons of new orders coming through. So this is going to keep capacity relatively tight for flatbed trailers in the coming months as we still see new orders still coming in. We see machinery happening right now. But that machinery aspect coming up right now that we're seeing is telling me that there is a significant amount of capital investment going on within the market and businesses, companies are investing in these these, uh, capital goods with expectation that there's going to be use for it, of course, because now there's going to be more downstream needs for it. There's upstream, of course, but downstream needs for all this machinery being put in place. So one of my favorite indices to watch. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that one up today. Well, we can ask Amit here in a minute his thoughts on flatbed. But you've got businesses with a lot of cash on their balance sheet. You've got consumers with a lot of cash on their balance sheet. So you've got a lot of optimism just moving forward on production. Uh, So yeah, great one, Anthony. Okay, I've also got a Sonar one for you. 
This is retail sales. They came out on Friday. So they actually surprised uh, consensus expectations a little bit. And I'm going to take a look at this in a a little bit of a different way. So this is the seasonally adjusted numbers from the Commerce Department. Again, so it's important to remember that the Commerce Department adjusts for seasonal changes, but they do not adjust for price changes. So in times where there's a little bit of elevated inflation, it is kind of important to adjust for inflation. And it's also important to understand what the seasonal changes are expected to be. So for example, retail sales in June almost always fall 4% uh, from May to June. So a seasonally adjusted increase in spending like we had last month could just mean that sales fell less than they expected to, uh, fell less than they were expected to. That's exactly what happened. Nominal sales fell 4.9 billion, but that was only 1.1% decline uh, from May to June. That's, that's much better than the, on average, about 3 or 4% decline. So that's one thing to take into account. Second thing, is in terms of elevated inflation, uh, if, you, if you want to take, in, take uh, that into account, I saw Dr. Jason Miller from Michigan State University. He, on LinkedIn, kind of did some analysis using the Bureau of Economic Analysis headline retail trade deflator, which he acknowledged is not the perfect way to do this, but it does give us a little bit of an of a, of a inflationary number on that to estimate real retail sales, excluding automobiles. And per his estimates, he's got deflated sales declining a little bit, about $8 billion, uh, from June to May, or roughly 2.1%. Again, much less than 2018 or 2019. All this is to say that at first glance and looking at retail sales, it's actually pretty darn good. Right, right. And that's the big thing. So when you look at these numbers, it was built on, of course, transparency, tribal knowledge, meeting the actual data science, things like that. So that tribal knowledge, being able to dive into what's behind these initial numbers is huge. And so, yeah, I mean, that's a great breakdown of how to look at these monthly figures. Yeah, it was a little bit uh, wordy there. So I saw we got a little technical there. But you can check out Dr. Jason Miller on, on LinkedIn. He's got some pretty good stuff. All right, let's uh, save you care or not for the back end of the show because we have Amit ready and I'm excited to have him on. So Amit, how are we doing, man? Hey, thanks. How are you? Can you hear me yeah. okay? Yeah, sure can, man. Thanks so much for joining the show. So glad to have you. So okay. we're going to play a quick game, okay? It's just called buy or sell. Very simple. Give me a statement or a rumor I've heard and you tell me whether you're buying it or selling it and why. Just got one quick one okay, for you. So let's go. This one came out, I saw this on uh, CNBC this morning. Salesforce has put out this projection and they project that retailers will pay $223 billion extra for goods in the second half of 2021 versus 2020. The amount represents a 62% increase from last year that is comprised of $12 billion extra from suppliers, $48 billion more in wages, and $163 billion extra in logistics costs. Amit, you buying or selling that? I'm definitely buying it. From my contacts in the retail world, people head of supply chains, the big buck retailers, they're seeing 10 to 20% inflation this year. And most surprisingly, they're seeing inflation next year as well on top of these big numbers. So those numbers, uh, order of magnitude wise, seem pretty appropriate. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, a little bit scary to see $163 billion in uh, access logistics costs this year over last year after they were already paying a little bit extra last year. But you got to think it's not, only, it's not only transportation costs. We're talking about higher warehousing costs, higher logistics expenses. It's higher things across the entire board. All right, Amit, let's jump into uh, a couple notes that, that I read of yours last week. You picked out your favorite name in the sector. Let's just start with them. That is Knight Swift. Talk to me about them. Well, listen, I think I think heading into this year, we had an incredibly bullish call on what supply demand is going to look like this year. I know you debated that early, early last year. Um, and, and I think everything that we had expected is playing out in terms of the dislocation of supply and demand. I think what we got wrong uh, or what we maybe need to think about a little bit more is how much congestion that's driving in the networks today. And so I think I think all in all, the supply-demand dynamics are incredibly good for 
pricing and night and trucking in general are going to be uh, big beneficiaries of that. We'll find out tomorrow morning when night reports results, which we think will be incredibly strong. Um, but for us, the game-changing kind of thesis-changing event was when they acquired AAA, uh, a regional LTL company, as you know, for over a billion dollars. More importantly, hopefully when you have me on a year from now, we'll be talking about the second or third acquisition that Knight made entering the LTL space, whereby 15% of their profits exposed to that business is now turning into 30 to 50%. So the call we're making on Knight is not just this acquisition alone being a thesis-changing event, but what the pivot and strategy implies for the equity value and the valuation of the company. And that's what we're most excited about. And so we think Knight is the only company that we cover, and we cover them all, that we can basically underwrite a potential 50%, percent increase in valuation on the back of this pretty meaningful pivot to the LTL market, which we think will be well rewarded. Amit, what do you say to the people that say uh, LTL and Truckload are two totally different businesses? The operational excellence that the Knight Swift team has in Truckload uh, won't easily transfer over to LTL. What do you say to them? Well, I mean, I, I, it's undeniable that they're two completely different businesses, which is why we like it, because uh, you're moving from, you're taking, I mean, the way I think about Knight is it's the best house in a very difficult neighborhood, and you're picking that house up and moving it to Beverly Hills, California. <laughs> and so we think at the end of the day, the LTL is the Beverly Hills of, of trucking, and uh, we like that it's very different. It's consolidated, and they're price makers, not price takers. Listen, I will never bet against the Knight Swift management team. Kevin Knight, um, Dave Jackson, Adam Miller, incredibly uh, good managers and capital allocators. They proved that with the Swift integration. I think the Swift integration was significantly more difficult than what a potential LTL integration is going to be. And people forget one of the biggest cost items after labor for LTL companies is purchase transportation. It's that outsourced line haul that gets outsourced to truckload companies. And then I also think the revenue synergies, you know, Knight, Swift, Warner, all these companies are heavy on retail, LTLs heavy, heavy on uh, industrial. You were just talking about seasonality. When January and February, when some of that retail demand drives up, it will be nice to have an industrial output to soak up all that trailer capacity that they have. So, I mean, there's definitely been a ton happening within logistics over the last year. And one of the things I hear uh, a phrase uh, kind of coined on, on your, you and your team, the golden age of transports. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I mean, so, well, it's interesting. Ever since we put it, put it, put it out, the equity values of the transport <laughs> stock has done nothing to yeah. go down, so, which, is, which, is, which is a little bit of an unfortunate event. Um, I think what we're trying to say is, is that, you know, by the whole transportation landscape from, from the perspective of the equity holder is changing. Five to seven years ago, um, you know, one subsector of transportation had demonstrable pricing power, which is the rails, uh, trucking, LTL and truckload, intermodal um, brokers. They were all kind of put in the same cyclical bucket. Now you fast forward five years today, three of the major four, three of the four major subsectors in transport, which is parcels, rails, LTL, have demonstrable pricing power. And I think that's a paradigm shift to the industry. Some of it is, um, is, is, is a function of consolidation, and some of it is a function of new management team as it relates to UPS and the commercial industry. But, um, you know, we think the, the, the demand drivers uh, underpinning this, this super cycle in transport are, in, are much more stickier than people give credit for. If you look at household wealth today, $136 trillion 
If you look at the loan to value of U.S. households, it's the lowest it's been since 1965. And this is an amazing statistic. If you think about it, if you look at non-mortgage debt relative to the net worth of U.S. households cumulatively in this country, it's at 4.7%. That's the lowest level it's been since 1965. And on top of that, you know, you have some real supply constraints vis-a-vis driver shortages. I mean, driver challenges have been an issue for as long as we can remember, but they've never been as difficult as they have now. And if we get an infrastructure bill over the next several months, those drivers potentially are going to move from cabs to construction sites for years, and it's going to exacerbate that dynamic. So I think that um, all this is leading to very, very tight supply-demand dynamics for longer than people think, even today, and that's allowing for significant pricing opportunities. And I think the combination of that allows this to be a golden age for transport. Now, the last thing I'll say before I before I stop is that um, this is the fundamental uh, outlook for where we are today. How it translates to equity values is going to depend on how the market perceives the cyclicality of the business. And so typically, people, as, as, as earnings go up in a cyclical industry, the multiple devaluation, the capitalization rate comes down. That is the biggest risk. It is the biggest risk that we put all the way back in November based on our bullish outlook. It's starting to come to fruition now, but we think six months from now, we'll look back at this as a blip and equity values will be quite a bit higher. I mean, I think that's a really good point you made about the infrastructure bill. Everybody kind of, kind of touts the what it could do to demand, uh, especially on the industrial side, on the flatbed side. But people don't really talk about what it is, what what it will likely do to capacity, taking drivers out of the market. That's a good point. Hey, you spent some time, uh, you and your time, you and your team spent some time with the with the new GXO uh, executive team, or a few of them last week. Uh, tell me, tell me some of the things you learned. Sure. I mean, before I start there, let me just say beyond that too. There's 4,500 drivers every month that's going into the clearinghouse for substance abuse and. That's a, a new phenomenon, too, that's constraining demand, uh, sorry, constraining supply of drivers. Um, in terms of GXO, listen, we have been, you know, we launched on XPO at $32 per share five years ago. Today, the stock's at 140 It wasn't a straight line there, that's for sure. But we always believed in the intrinsic value and the strategic value of where that company sits, meaning they participate at a wholesale level based on how supply chains have to change on the back of e-commerce. And, you know, if, if, if Amazon or Target or Walmart is going to get something to you in one or two days, it's not going to be by teleportation. That thing is going to be sitting close to you to begin with. And XPO sits right in the middle of that secular theme. There's going to be supply chains that are going to get more complex. There are going to be more nodes in the supply chain. XPO is the number two player globally outsourced partner retailers that affect that strategy. And as a result, that's really what we've been positive on. And hopefully the spin-off of GXO, which takes effect August 2nd, will allow the company to, to prove that case in a very pure play, clear way. And hopefully the growth will get the, get the, get the credit it deserves in the marketplace. So, I mean, you just mentioned one of those uh, really good point about the clearinghouse right now and drivers and some of those capacity issues kind of heading up into the coming months really are really impacting us right now. Are there any other trends that you're not quite bullish on looking forward within the transportation industry? Well, I think it's, it's hard to deny, um, you know, the, the cyclical dynamics of truckload. I think that, you know, truckload is, I also cover the maritime shipping industry. And uh, after dry bulk, um, after the dry bulk commodity shipping industry, I think trucking is the most fragmented industry in the world. And so 
Um, it's true that volumes have, um, you know, pricing and volumes and great selection opportunities are at unprecedentedly high levels. Um, what's really fascinating right now is, is that orders are relatively low. You know, slots for 2022 are pretty much booked out. So the, the real bearishness could evolve in the truckload space as orders start to pick up as some of these chip shortages uh, fix itself or over the next six to nine months. And so I think the risk is, is that, you know, these truckload stocks are stuck in neutral um, because most of them are already discounting a downturn. And, you know, the market is, is smarter than all of us over time. And so um, what the market is telling us based on the current valuations is the, the other side of this is going to look pretty ugly. Um, I don't really know what catalyzes that at this moment, but when you have Knight or Warner trading at 11, 12 times forward earnings, what the market is telling you is that the, the peak to trough earnings declines are just far greater than what I appreciate them to be and I think what generally the market appreciates them. So it's after a while, you have to respect what the market is telling you, and we're certainly not naive to that. But I would say that, you know, at this point in the cycle, you've got to be fearful a little bit of highly cyclical, highly fragmented industries with low barriers to entry, um, truckload. Is, and then the only reason we're bullish on the biggest truckload company in the world, in the country certainly, is because they're pivoting to a better industry, which is LTL. Right. Hey, I wanted to uh, I wanted to bring you back to that um, the Beverly Hills statement about how LTL you're taking the the best house in the bad neighborhood, taking it to to LTL, which is Beverly Hills. Um, is there any other better place than Beverly Hills? Is there any other better place than LTL in logistics right now, or what you can see in the in the near future with new technology coming into warehousing or or any other space? Well, I mean, you know, it's it's um, over time. If you look throughout history, the railroads um, over the last decade and a half have proven to have the most consistent returns on capital that are well above, above their cost of capital. And so clearly the rail industry is, is the best place to be. However, it's, uh, you know, there's only seven class one rails, six of them public. It's, it's a hard business model to replicate, if not impossible. I think FedEx and UPS are probably um, the best places to be right now because what they offer is um, a, a potential rail-like pricing over time as long as the will is there on the part of managers, the managers of those companies to, to, to pull on that pricing lever. We certainly seem to be doing it with CapEx discipline today and valuation that's a discount to their multiples. And so we at Deutsche Bank, we upgraded UPS at $92 per share a year ago, incredibly contrarian. I remember writing at that time, it was the, in 20 years of writing research, the most pushback we've ever gotten on an upgrade. And the equity value of that company is now more than double. And we think UPS can be closer to $300 12 months from now, and FedEx can be closer to $400 um, 12 months from now. Um, and and, and, and you're, not, you're not debating the cyclicality because the multiples are relatively low and certainly trading at a discounted market. So I would say FedEx and UPS are probably the best neighborhoods after rails and certainly um, you know, duopolistic potential from pricing, though it has to be proven still. Gotcha. Tone, yeah, I was just, uh, what about, uh, while we're on the topic of the rails, just for a moment, we got, just got a couple more minutes here, Ahmed. Um, what do you make sure. of the congestion? You mentioned it earlier, as that's kind of one of the things that you, you had maybe um, underestimated, the congestion at some of these ports. We've, we've now seen BNSF has 
also is metering its um, its service from the West Coast to Chicago to try to clear up some of the middle of the country and the terminals there. What do you make of the congestion and what do you think of what BNSF and UP's response has been to it? Well, I, I think, I, you know, the, it's the old adage that like volume is good for the rails, but too much volume is not necessarily a good thing for the rails. These are obviously network centric businesses and there's a little bit of a butterfly effect. If something goes wrong on one part of the network, it affects things thousands of miles away. And so I think the rail industry is doing a really, really good job given the unprecedented circumstances associated with demand, lack of equipment, labor shortages, COVID, uh, customers holding onto boxes longer. Um, you know, I think, I think when, when Union Pacific, CSX, Norfolk Southern report earnings, what you'll see is significant recovery in volume and revenues from 1Q to 2Q with very little to zero increase in costs. And so I think, I think these rail companies are, are navigating this as best they can. A lot of it is out of their control because of all the things I mentioned. But, um, but there's really not a lot, um, you know, of criticism that I can offer there because I think they're, they're dealing with a very difficult situation, an unprecedentedly difficult situation as best they can and putting up incredibly strong financial operating metrics while they're doing it. So I think this is a, a, a situation where more equipment has to enter the market. Uh, JB Hunt just recently said yesterday that, you know, they're going to take delivery of three to 4,000 more container boxes in the third quarter. I think slowly these bottlenecks will unkink, so to speak, and the rail rail partner and the rail companies can have a little bit more of a fluid network, and speeds can go up, dwell times can go down, and the performance can actually be better. But let me be clear: their performance today is exceptionally strong in the context of what's being thrown at them, and the fact that they're able to keep their labor flattened down consistently over the last several months, while they're seeing hundreds of millions of dollars of sequential revenue growth. Is nothing nothing more than heroic, and and I think it, uh, kind of underscores the benefits of their persistent schedule of railroading initiatives in the last three or four years. So I mean, I have to ask one really big question that we always get, um, especially with our CEO Craig Fuller here. What is one big prediction or one bold prediction that you're gonna that you can make right now for the next maybe twelve months within this industry? Well, you want another one? I mean, I think like six <laughs> months ago, we made a pretty damn bold prediction. And I remember, um, you know, there was a lot of doubt around that. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a good question. And I appreciate the question. It kind of forces us to think, you know, more long term, which I think is always helpful. But, you know, I'm going to stick with the consistency of our message. And, and that is that, um, you know, investors in transportation and logistics are very focused on the change in the second derivative, the rate of change. Um, and of course, we've been in such a strong market today that we can, we can come off of it a little bit and still be in a very healthy market where these companies are generating incredibly good returns relative to history. And so I think that, you know, one of my predictions is that, you know, a year from now, hopefully you guys have us back on and we're talking about how we're in a market that's still tight, that's still good, albeit not necessarily as good. Is what it is today, um, but it doesn't have to be. And and I and and the other thing is is that my hope is is that the transportation and logistics space um, re-rates in the minds of investors over time because it's a business now where the majority of the subsectors and companies have capex discipline, have pricing power that is demonstrable, and control over their cost structure that probably was not appreciated 
um, two or three years ago. And, and I think the industry as a whole is also adopting technology uh, in a way. I mean, we look at Too Simple having a market valuation $10 billion. That is the market giving credibility to autonomous line haul capacity and trucking that I think is maybe not as far away as people who are, have traditional hats on things. So I think 12 months from now, we'll have a continue to have a strong market, uh, continue to have a tight market. And some of these autonomous technology companies are going to be um, more front and center than they are now in terms of the real value they can provide to the P&L for a lot of these trucking companies. All right. I love it, Ahmed. Uh, and I'll say, listen, the only part that I uh, that I argued with at all was that I thought the consumer demand wouldn't be as persistent this late into the year. I thought that the services demand would take away from goods, but I will I will give it up. You were completely right on that. Goods demand has stayed pretty damn strong uh, thus far. So thank you so much. Well, for listen, your time I think I think um, you know it's what it's what makes a market, and so I I definitely appreciate your perspective, and I love the pushback. We love pushback because it just makes everybody a little bit smarter, and um, and so hopefully we can continue the dialogue and ensure talk in the future. Thank you very much. Yes, most definitely. We'll have you on back shortly. Thanks, Amit. See ya. Man, I love having him on. Uh, I'm going to definitely have him on again. He's, uh, I mean, he's just said, I, I, mean, I can't wait to go back and listen. There's so many like good 45 second clips there that were just full of insight. Uh, that yeah, one of the things he just said, I love CapEx discipline. Something think, that this industry has needed for a long time. <laughs> I think there could be a huge conversation in just that phrase alone. CapEx discipline, what it means, not only just for the industry, but for the overall economy. We're just talking about industrial production. There is a lot there for sure. Yes, man. Okay, so let's. Uh, we got four minutes here. Let's run through a couple. You care or Nas? We got time for maybe one or two. Um, this first one is on is on a report that I read that came out yesterday. It's a, a new report from the S and P Global Market Intelligence team, and they say that Nike might run out of Vietnamese-made sneakers as COVID rapidly spreads throughout Southeast Asian countries. So they've shut down two of Nike's major suppliers there in Vietnam. Have shut down. Vietnam accounted for 49% of Nike-linked uh, seaborne imports in the second quarter. 82% of those shipments had shoes in them. So they make a lot of shoes in yeah. Vietnam. So you care or not about the, uh, the chance that Nike might run out of shoes? Yeah, I care. I mean, be, also because I'm not heartless and I care about the situation going on in Vietnam. Right. But uh, so much with the, the shoes, of, I'm not too much of a sneakerhead, but I love Nike shoes, of course. This is one of those things where for sure the, the market's going to adjust. And I'm sure there's going to be an upsell maybe uh, as soon as some inventory comes in, it's going to get snatched up. And then you're going to see these kind of marked up from um, intermediaries or maybe those websites that kind of sell shoes. I don't know. You can tell me a little bit more about some of those exclusive websites. With yeah, those they're, exclusive they're, drops. they're freaking hard and they're, they're, <laughs> they're owned by bots. Um, but I'll actually say, I, I think I'll go counterintuitive here. I actually, I don't care about this one. And there's a few reasons. One, I think Nike has an, an incredible logistics team yeah. that has actually beefed up and grown a lot since the beginning of the pandemic. They brought in like a whole new team of, of, uh, of, of, of international logistics people that have built that team and grown since day one. And they've been dealing with these, these supply chain issues since the beginning of COVID. I mean, I've seen shoes that were supposed to be released middle of last year, not get released till early this year. I mean, and time and time again. So they're very clever about how they disguise supply chain issues and they don't say much, but they just make sure that they end up having something to sell. So I'm actually not all that worried about this. Um, you know, they, they focus on their supply chain service, focus on, you know, the, making sure everything works. And then they will, they've said they will kind of adjust and optimize for price later. That dates back to like Phil Knight shoe dog days where he's like, let's make a great shoe and then we'll worry about what it costs later. That's, that's, that has been the whole focus of the company. So actually, I don't care about this one. And I think Nike will be just fine. Uh, real quick, this one, I have this great video of uh, DHL. So said Monday, 
that they're going to use more than four. We're going to buy more than four thousand of these heavy cargo drones. They are provided by Dronomics, uh, and they're going to do it for their logistics and parcel network in Europe. So this is the Black Swan right there. It can carry 770 pounds for up to 1,500 miles. Uh, it gets up 22,000 feet in the air. It's, it goes 125 miles per hour. These are some beasts. And this is going to be running middle mile stuff in Europe. So DHL will do the first and last mile. And these will run in a network of, they're going to plan, they're planning for 39 drone ports, basically airports for drones. What do you think? Care or not? Nah, I think well, it's super cool. And I think it's, I'm saying no because I think you do care, but I'm saying no. <laughs> Was I hyping it up a little? <laughs> With all my stats? <laughs> I, I, I think it's really cool, but I don't care too much right now because I think it's really at that point where the cost isn't there just yet and the utilization isn't there just yet. So I will care when I see it flying down Chattanooga, Main Street, Broad Street, something like that, delivering, I don't know, a, a pair of Nikes for me or something like that. But <laughs> just right now, don't care. I think it's really cool though. Yeah, I'll just say one thing. I was just thinking about it in my head. I was like, there's not a single thing in my house, appliance, dishwasher, dryer, nothing that weighs 700 pounds. <laughs> so I know these are supposed to be doing middle mile. They yeah. can like drop it a mile away from Couch. my house and then they'll, they'll drop it off. I mean, not a single thing in my house. <laughs> so there's a lot you can put in these drones. Uh, so I'm, I'm impressed by them. Okay, that's been it for episode 78 of Great Quarter, guys. We'll be back next week, of course, at three o'clock. Eastern. If you enjoyed what we were talking about today, make sure to go back and watch some of our old episodes. You can find those anywhere you listen to podcasts. On um, You can find them on either Freightcast or you can find Great Quarter Guys. You can search either of those on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also find everything live uh, on Freightwaves TV or get it on tv.freightwaves.com. See you next week. <laughs>